and I raised my hand and I said, what are those? And they said, oh, um, this is a writing center for kids. And, and the idea of those is to show the kids who come into the center, uh, even though writing is very much a solo art form, giving your writing to a friend or to a, you know, to a, to a volunteer here at the center or maybe a teacher or if you get older, an editor, somebody who will give you feedback on your writing. You don't have to take all the feedback, but you can take some of it and it will help you make your story better. And that was the first time at the age of 23, it was the first time anybody had ever talked to me about writing as if it was craft. Now, don't get me wrong, I believe some people are blessed with incredible writing powers out of the gate. But up until that moment, I truly just thought you either had it or you didn't. I really thought if you were a writer, you were like touched by God or the universe, you lived in an ivory tower, you wrote perfect prose, you hit print, it came out, you put a cover on it, you were a millionaire. Which of course, <laughs> <Ta-da>. <laughs> but that was the first time somebody said to me, hey, this is something you can work at and get better at. And actually it's kind of more like, it's less that it comes out of you in a beautiful trance-like state that God has put you in. And more like you're banging on a dent in a car and you're just maybe not, it's not gonna look exactly like you want it, but you can make it better. And it helps if you have friends and community with you. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. We are really excited to talk with our guest today, Isaac Fitzgerald. His highly acclaimed book, Dirtbag Massachusetts, has just been released in paperback, and we are thrilled that he's agreed to join us. I am Ron Block. And I'm Meg Walker. Isaac Fitzgerald appears frequently on the Today Show and is the author of the best-selling children's book, How to Be a Pirate, as well as the co-author of Pen and Ink and Knives and Ink, winner of an IACP award. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Best American Non-Required Reading, and numerous other publications. He lives in Brooklyn. When his new book was released last year, one of our favorite past guests, Michael Ian Black, in the New York Times Book Review, said... It's an endearing and tattered catalog of one man's transgressions and the ways in which it is our sins, far more than our virtues, that make us who we are. We can't wait to find out more. Welcome to the podcast, Isaac. Thank you guys so much for having me. And thank you for reading those incredibly kind words from Michael Ian Black, which really just like meant the absolute world to me. But I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, that We're was so a happy to have you. Great review he wrote for you. Great review. And we do love him. We love his book, yes. too. He was a great guest. So. Yeah, that was a really good episode. Excited. He writes so well about so many different subjects, but masculinity being one of them. So to be one, just, you know, you, you think of that moment when your book review comes out. So the fact that it was given to somebody like him who has so many incredible thoughts on this subject was it felt like a real blessing from the New York Times that they would assign it to him. It felt like an incredible blessing that he would accept that assignment. Yep. Um, and then to have somebody connect with your work and and critique it so smartly the way that he did and really get it was just, I didn't move for like a day. I just kind of <laughs> sat, sat in my living room and was like tried my best to process it, though I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Uh, okay, so the subtitle of your book is A Confessional. Talk to us about the idea, how it first formed, and why did you choose this form of memoir as in confessional? Yeah, so for me... I, I mean, it's a fun, it's a fun story and I, it, it pulls the curtain back a little bit about how publishing is. I feel like a lot of times people feel, oh, like somebody knows exactly what they're doing and they're going to be so precise with it. But this is an actually very tipsy, turvy business. Um, and so I had sold an essay collection, which is what this is. It's an essay collection. Right. So basically I sold this essay collection to Bloomsbury and the idea behind it was it would basically look at different 
bands, movies, different aspects of pop culture. And there would be like a sprinkling, just a little sprinkling of my own personal stories connected to those kind of pop culture items. And years went by. Uh, I got this book in very, very late. Uh, and every time I sat down to write it, one, one, the best there, there's still some examples in the book. Of course, there's an essay about the hold steady. There's an essay about the movie based on the book by Chuck Pawn at fight club. Um, and those are great examples of kind of what I was setting out to do with the whole thing. But every time I sat down to write it, uh, one that didn't make it in the book was I was, I was thinking about star Wars and all of a sudden I'd write just like seven pages about my father. And so after, after that happening time and time again, I finally called my editor at Bloomsbury, a wonderful woman named Nancy Miller, and I said, hey, I think this is less an essay collection and, and, and more. It's still going to be an essays. I still want it to be episodic, but there's a lot more of my childhood in here than I think I initially thought there would be. And I hope that's okay because I sold you this other idea. And Nancy basically said, I've been waiting 18 months for you to figure that out. <laughs> and so she, well, that's great. She could see that that's what I was bumping up against. And so once I worked and on- And she still the, wanted it. <laughs> she still wanted it. Yes, thankfully. That's great. And so once I worked on the different aspects of it, and that, especially that opening essay and the closing essay, that was actually one long essay that we kind of split in the middle. But once I had it all together- she said, Isaac, of course, this is an essay collection still, but it's so much more personal, but it's not so connected that we can just call it a memoir. Is there anything else that comes to mind? And I was worried. I was worried that she might think it was too cheesy, but it was the first thing that popped into my head. And I said, what about a confession? Because it worked on so many different layers. I mean, like the stories in there are stories that I don't often share with other people. And now I'm sharing them with the world. And of course, there's the Catholic aspect, the confession and the confessional booth itself, a place where you would, you would go to tell the deepest stories that you have, for lack of a better word. And luckily, she said, oh, my gosh, I love it. And so that's how it got to be, you know, put on, put on the cover of a book. Although I do get asked this a lot. Somebody's like, so is, is, are you trying to start like a new genre? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's just it's a memoir <laughs> and essays. I was just trying to be a little fancy with what we called it. <laughs> That's great. Well, let's talk about the opening line of the book. Uh, my parents were married when they had me, just to different people. That's one hell of a beginning. So tell us about why you started the story there. Well, so that part, part of what the book is about is the ways that we try to make sense of our own lives through stories. It can be comforting sometimes, right, to find these different narratives. And, and it's something that you almost have to be wary of. You know, if you turn everything in your life into having like a life lesson, you're maybe not meeting the reality of what it actually is to be alive. You just kind of keep turning things into stories. It's a habit that I've had for a long time. So that opening line, my parents were married when they had me just to different people, was a line I'd been saying since my child, at least my early, early teens. I knew just, just because of how much my parents, they loved books. So I was surrounded by stories when I was growing up, just how much, you know, I've read so many first lines. So I knew how to look for a first line that was kind of disarming, kind of intriguing, kind of humorous. And so anytime I was sharing this story, I would always, you know, especially almost as a way to keep distance. Like we're not going to ask too many other questions after this, but like my parents were married when they had me just to different people was something I'd been using for so long. So when I, when I realized, like I said, that this wasn't just going to be kind of a pop culture essay collection that I was going to try and go deeper. I knew immediately that that was my first line. And not long after that, I I had the last, you know, no spoilers, but I had the last, you know, line or three lines, however you want to put it. And then I just had to write everything in between. But I, I knew that that was going to be my opener because I knew it's a way to, to draw the reader in because since basically I was like 12 or maybe younger, I've been using it to draw people in while, while kind of t- sharing my own personal story. It says a lot. Uh-huh. Boy, it pulls the reader right in. So you, you talked about like kind of how you got to this point where you were going to write this memoir and essay collection and as a confessional. But how did the pieces then come together? Because they do, I mean, they're obviously they're not, it's not a linear book, but it, each piece is successive. It, it tells a little bit more of the story and it goes in a quick line. Did it come out of you that way once you sat down and started writing or, or was it all piecemeal and you had to move them around? 
Oh no, a hundred percent. This is one of my favorite things uh, in life. Um, uh, I volunteered years and years and years ago, long before I ever had a dream of having a book. You know, I loved books. I loved reading, but I don't think I even realized writing was something you could do, uh, in the world, let alone, you know, try attempt, perhaps maybe to make a living at it. Uh, but I, I volunteered at a place called 826 Valencia. And I won't give you the whole long story, but just know that at the age of 23, I found myself in a room surrounded by there are these pages on the wall and they were all framed and they were typed out pages, just single page printed out typed, but they were covered in markings, either with pencil or pen. And I remember it was like it was like an orientation meeting for new volunteers. And I raised my hand. And I said, what are those? And they said, oh, um, this is a writing center for kids. And, and the idea of those is to show the kids who come into the center, uh, even though writing is very much a solo art form, uh, giving your writing to a friend or to a, you know, to a to a volunteer here at the center or maybe a teacher or if you get older, an editor, somebody who will give you feedback on your writing. You don't have to take all the feedback, but you can take some of it and it will help you make your story better. And that was the first time at the age of 23, it was the first time anybody had ever talked to me about writing as if it was craft. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe some people are blessed with incredible writing powers out of the gate. But up until that moment, I truly just thought you either had it or you didn't. I really thought... Uh if you were a writer, you were like touched by God or the universe. You lived in an ivory tower. You wrote perfect prose. You hit print. It came out. You put a cover on it. You were a millionaire, which of course. <laughs> Ta-da. But that was the first time somebody said to me, hey, this is something you can work at and get better at. And actually, it's kind of more like it's less that it comes out of you in a beautiful trance-like state that God has put you in. And more like you're banging on a dent in a car and you're just maybe not. It's not going to look exactly like you want it, but you can make it better. And it helps if you have friends and community with you. And so to, to answer your question, when I sat down, like I said, one, this, the book that I sold was completely different than what I ended up making. Two, the actual making it process was very much like what I was just telling you about. It was, apologies for mixing metaphors after a dent with a car, but basically like making a quilt. I would make these little patches. I would write these little riffs. I had writing, some of the, some parts of this book had appeared in essays or essays that had been published online. And it's like I sat down and worked on stitching them all together. And as I said, that opening essay and last essay, they're, they're the same long essay, just split in the middle. So sometimes I was also breaking things apart. Oh, I like that. Around. Uh, other other parts, mosaic, yeah, mosaic, exactly. And so that for me, um, if you allow me, like a fourth metaphor in this metaphor, <laughs> you, got like, you got it. I like. I consider writing like making a bunch of clay. I just make a a big pile of words, and then out of that, I slowly start to try and carve what I'm working on, and then I show it to friends. And they're like, this is garbage, but what if you did this? And they change it in these different ways. And that's how this, like this book, a lot of people helped make this book happen. And, and that is why I liked, you know, there's, there's a, there's a part of you always, sorry, I'll, I'll stop it after this. <laughs> no, <laughs> fine. For me, once, right. the essay, once the essays were complete and they're all right, there's this part of you that's like, wait, if I worked on it for like another year. Maybe it would just be a memoir. Maybe it wouldn't, maybe I could even figure out ways to make these connect even like further. And one, you just have to admit that that's you not wanting to let go of the book and you're scared of it getting published. So two, right. I, I so many deadlines, my editor was like, absolutely not. And three, <laughs> in the end, I'm really happy that you can see the scenes in this book, in this quilt, yeah. because yes. that was such an important part of making it. And for me, that's, that's how I learned the facts about my life and the stories that were told to me that maybe weren't as accurate as I thought. It was very piecemeal. So in, in a way, the final object has that piecemeal aspect to it. And I really like that. And the order in which you choose to put the essays is not the order in which they were written necessarily, right? You, you, you decide what, what puzzling those together in a certain sequence does. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. 100%. One, one, of the biggest, uh, one of the biggest issues that my, that my editor had uh, was because I would I had a tendency to tell it like it would be like the same story in seven different places, and so it was about finding what was the best telling of that story and and where was the right place to put it and uh, and all these different aspects to it. Um, but no, I absolutely did not sit down and start at the beginning and end at the end. I wrote this book in many different and many different places, even 
back of napkins, a lot of handwriting, a lot of punching things into the notes app on my phone. But there was a lot of different aspects to it. And it was all completely out of order. But that was also part of the fun was sitting down and seeing, okay, what leads to which and 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 how are we going to make sure? Because it was important to me that each essay, like a mixtape, uh, not to date myself, but like on a mix, each song is a standalone song. But you're also hoping for a theme. Maybe you're giving it to your best friend. Yeah. You're giving it to yeah. you like maybe. So there's a crush aspect to it. But I wanted to have this overall arching thing throughout it, while each essay also was standalone. I love it. I love it. So you 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 touched on this briefly about having a readers um, help you early on. So who was your first reader in the process? Oh well, so the many, but my the the number one is my agent Meredith Caffel Simonoff, who she is just phenomenal. Um, and she and I have a saying, which is actually to get back to a mechanic metaphor. It comes from a, a garage. I saw it as a sign. It says, "No shit leaves the shop." <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I love Meredith so much for so many different reasons. But one of them is uh, that she will take a look at my writing and make sure uh, that I'm not totally embarrassing myself, not totally showing my own ass before I show it to maybe an editor or someone else. Um, and then another person, uh, I actually live in the garden apartment, which is in, in, in New York, there are brownstones and the garden apartment's kind of a smaller apartment on the ground level. The Laverne and Shirley apartment. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> In-law. Uh, <laughs> so I live, uh, my, my, my friend, uh, and, and, and landlord, a uh, friend Lord, however you want to put it, but is an, an, a wonderful author named John Ray. And he wrote this great book called Low Boy. He most recently had this wonderful book that I love called Gone to the Wolves. He's got so many of my favorites in between those two books, Godsend. Um, wonderful guy. I was supposed to live here for one year. In a month, it will be 10 years. Wow. Uh, but, <laughs> wow. He, but he also, on top of putting a roof over my head, sat down and took my manuscript, like right before I handed it in, sat down. And I liked, I have what I call progressive views on grammar. Uh, he <laughs> comes from a more educated background and he literally like a clock, like a watch worker, like went through the entire manuscript and moved commas and tightened it in this way that I don't think I could have paid somebody to do it as well as he did. So he, I, he deserves a big shout out too. Love that. That's awesome. Well, talk to us about the title and why Massachusetts is such a big part of your story and who you are. Well, so one I'll answer the second half of that question first, which is to stick with the personal. I um, I love coming from Massachusetts and I love, I had a very interesting childhood and I'm aware of that now, but when you're a kid, you just think that that's how everybody else lives. And so I got to live in inner city Boston in the eighties. And then I also got to live in a very rural part of North central Massachusetts so I had this almost balance of an extremely city life and an extremely country life. And now I can appreciate that for what it is, which is that I got a chance to almost have two childhoods. And it's interesting because I, I grew up in, in a shelter for the unhoused run by the Catholic worker, which is like socialist Catholicism, like less Vatican, more give your shirt off your back to your neighbor. Um, and if you look at, at my childhood on paper, that should be the worst part of my childhood. But in a way, it was actually one of the best parts of my childhood. I absolutely mm. loved the community there. I loved being surrounded by all these people. Um, and then I li lived out in North Central Massachusetts, which, and, and you, you see this in the book, feels very, very lonely. Uh, that said, it is also incredibly beautiful out there. And there is, especially now, such a strong sense of community uh, so I, I get back there often. I, I really love the place. So, so that's one thing that kind of balance of city and rural that I, that I really appreciate. The other thing I love about Massachusetts, which again is almost another balance thing, is I grew up in a very low income area of the state, and like I said, when we were living in the city, also extremely low income. Um, but it's still a very rich state. You know, there is a big focus on education in the state. Um, it's a wealthy state, I should say. And so it's, it's not the same as maybe growing up in, a, in another part of the country uh, in, in, in that uh, low-income setting. Because what you have, and this is something I'm kind of, I've always been a little fascinated with, and it's, is it because I grew up in, under this? Maybe. 
Um, but it's you have low income communities that are right next to extremely wealthy communities. It's almost you have one town where all the rich kids lived, and then the next town over was where everyone lived that ran all the things in the rich kids town. You know, and and so I've always been a little bit um, obsessed with with those dynamics. And it, later in the book, as you, it's sneakily, it's called Dirtbag Massachusetts, but it's sneakily a little bit about my time in California. Um, San Francisco is a place I find myself, which is again, a city by seven miles by seven miles. Unlike LA or other places, it can't sprawl. It's a peninsula. There is of course the Bay Area, there's Oakland. But again, in San Francisco proper, you still have that exact same thing. You have neighborhood to neighborhood, almost different streets where you, you will have incredible wealth. And then incredible uh rough areas and it's that income disparity that that i'm a little bit obsessed with but also the ways in which certain people learn to navigate both spaces um so that's what massachusetts means to me it gave me this very country very city childhood it gave me this sense of what it was to grow up extremely uh in a low-income area and then through boarding school and scholarships all of a sudden navigating these much wealthier um bubbles basically so that's that but then the first part of your question the title i so when we move out to north central massachusetts we end up in a town called athol massachusetts now we in athol there's a river and every year we have a river rat race and it's a canoe race that goes from orange <laughs> to athol i love it so much and so we lovingly call ourselves rat holes <laughs> but the rest of the state when you hear Athol, Massachusetts, it's the other word that you're thinking of. I don't know. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Absolutely. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Asshole, Massachusetts. Uh, and, and it, you know, it's one of those phrases, like, it's oh, it's got a funny name. But it did turn out, especially at the time that I was living there, we had the highest teenage pregnant pregnancy rate per capita. It was an incredibly poor part of the state. There's a section in the book where I write about this. I was doing research, and I came across this line that was like, being uh, far from the major hubs of Massachusetts, the people in this area create their own fun. That was like a lie. <laughs> I'm not joking. Like half a sentence later, it was like issues include, and then it was of course teenage pregnancy, drug, alcohol. Except, you know, like it was just this. It was this disparity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, asshole, Massachusetts. It was a little bit prideful. It was a little bit tongue in cheek. It's what I wanted to call the book. Turns out, on your podcast, we can square. But in a lot of other places, <laughs> that would be an ignorance to the book. And that's a, my joke always is you can't call a book Asshole Massachusetts. The truth is you probably could, but you'd have a hard time getting the librarian to put it in the front of the, the library. You know, like you'd, it, would just, it would just have a harder life. So they told me that they couldn't publish it as Asshole Massachusetts. And that's when I was talking. Again, you're going to hear this a lot. I have a lot of friends, and I'm grateful to them, a lot of community. But my friend Jason Diamond, who's himself a wonderful writer, uh, I was driving. And this is not a joke. This is not made up. He had a book event in Boston. So we were going to drive up to Boston, stay at a, like a shady motel in the shadow of Fenway, and then go do his events. And we're so we're driving to Fenway. And I was telling him this in the car and he just said, Oh, just call it dirtbag Massachusetts. Just like, just like that. Like, no, like, not like, like, like he didn't think about it. It was just ca like, could have so casual. And it became the best, one of the best parts of the book in my opinion. Like it was just, it's such a good title. It completely captured both the pride, like that dirtbag pride while at the same time, a little bit of the shame too. Uh, and I just loved it so much. And so that's where the title came from. And, and I totally owe it to Jason Diamond. Love it. I love best the title. Ever. <laughs> the title's what caught me originally. It's great. Yeah. I mean, not to, not to pile onto it, too. You should also know that that cover is by this incredible designer, Mia Kwan. The d cover design is incredible, too, I want to say, because it's a, a wood print, which Catholic worker, a lot of wood prints. There's also bar stuff, and it looks almost like a show, like a, at, at, a, at a rock and roll bar where, where I used to work. And, of course, there's the Catholic and Christian symbolism on it. And I just, I want to give a shout out to Mia because if I had been able to, the cover I wanted looked nothing like this. And <laughs> hindsight 2020, Mia was brilliant and I was an idiot. <laughs> Glad you have these people on your side. Exactly. exactly. Teamwork. 
Yeah. So you, you touched on this a little bit when we were talking about uh, Michael Ian Black's review. But um, one of the things that really strikes me about the book, and this is really rare, it was somebody who really comes out and, and touches on things like masculinity and, and, and being male in the world. And you were very open about it. Um, so the body issues, class, um, uh, just toxic masculinity. And especially through the whole thing of Fight Club. So can you talk to us about all that? And what did you discover about yourself as you were writing these things? Yeah. Um, to, to use the lens of Fight Club, uh, Chuck Palahniuk has talked quite a bit about how his book and then the movie, in a way, almost went to be misun- got to be misunderstood by a whole generation of young men. Because <laughs> <laughs> when you're 16, you don't have a lot of room for nuance. You just know... Yeah that Brad Pitt and Ed Norton looked really cool up there on the big screen. And so maybe you can start doing similar stuff, not really questioning uh, the ways that it is satiring and uh, satirizing and, and, and kind of poking fun at all these different uh, masculine images. Uh, but Chuck Palahniuk read the essay. Um, and it's, it's one of the prouder moments of my life where he very said, cool. no, he, he, he was, he felt very positive about it. He said, this is the best capturing of misunderstanding fight club that I have ever seen, which like really, wow. which really got me because that yeah. is a hundred percent what I was trying to show in that piece was how, and that's not, it doesn't lessen its importance. What we took it as when we were 16 was still very important to us, even though we were getting it totally wrong. And that's what art is, Right. Art is somebody creates something, but then somebody else interprets it. And it takes those two people coming together. That's where the final art happens. And sometimes this person is way misinterpreting what the artist meant, but there's still some magic that happens there. So so what it meant to us when we were 16 is still important. But then to be able to look back on it as an adult and and, and see the things I got right or wrong uh, were very important to me. And, and, and just to carry that a little bit further, it's the same with my family. If I'd written this book when I was 25, it would have been very unforgiving towards my parents. It would have been a lot of anger. It would have been a lot of anguish. Um, but, you know, starting in my mid-30s and, and finishing close, close to 40, uh, I was able to have a lot more empathy for the people in my life now that I myself was an adult and, and could see things differently. Um, so so I, I just I, I'm so appreciative of, of being able to look back in that way. But to, to jump back down into my 16 year old self, that doesn't mean it wasn't a really fun book and a really cool movie. And that we took away certain lessons from it. And, and for us, one of those lessons were a lot of kids in the area where I grew up were coming from violent households. And what fight club gave us was this idea of what if you took violence, which in our households would come out of nowhere, you had no idea when somebody came home and again, to, to jump up to my adult self, there's a difference. When you're an adult, you might've had a bad day at work. Your boss was maybe a shit to you. Somebody cut you off on the drive home. When you're a kid, that whole house is your whole world, right? And the, 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 the emotions of that house are all that you have, but you don't know who's walking in that front door. So violence, arguments, they could, they could pop off at any second and they were uncontrollable to us as children. Now we could gather as young teenagers and we could almost take that violence and make it controllable. That's, I mean, what is Fight Club? The first rule of Fight Club. The second, it's rule, you're putting rules on this very unwieldy thing in our natural lives and in our, in our home lives. All of a right. sudden in this, in this special place as men coming together, we got to put rules on it. Um, and you see this in all sorts of different aspects of life and all sorts of different groups. It's not just the male thing. Many different people do this in many different ways. But that's how we, it felt like a blueprint when we saw that movie on the big screen. Because let's be clear, we did see the movie before we read the book. But it felt like a blueprint <laughs> when we saw it on the big screen. And all of a sudden there we were in my buddy, use his name in the book, Connor, in my buddy Connor's kitchen and then living room. And then eventually we found a place outside where we would do it, where we could come together and, and share this control of violence as a group. And then the next thing that I like talking while I'm talking about this is, and you see this again in all sorts of different groups from all sorts of different backgrounds, but probably especially in young men, is you want to be a part of something, 
and there's a violent aspect towards it that makes you almost, you feel proud. It makes you feel tough. Um, but what it really is, is a coming together. And, and for us as young people, that's a, like, listen, there's a, it was a lot of punching, but there's a, it's a lot of grappling. There's touch is what I'm trying to say. It's glorified hugging sometimes. Uh, and you don't want to admit that, but that's what it adds as a group of very kind of isolated out there in the sticks, unwieldy home lives, kids, we got to come together and just kind of be together and touch, touch a bit. And, uh, and I think it was really important for us, even though it came from this great misinterpretation of this art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all about connection. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Eating better is something we want to be convenient and easy. With Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals, every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. I'm looking forward to over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart. Protein Plus, and Keto. What are you waiting for? Let's get started today and get after our goals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prep, no mess. With Factor, there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Sign up and save. They've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout. Join us and head to factormeals.com slash fiction50 and use code fiction50 to get 50% off. That's code fiction50 at factormeals.com slash fiction50 to get 50% off. Bedside Matters is the podcast for all the latest medical news and answers to your questions. Hosted by respected physician Dr. David Kipper, comedian Anna Vicino, and writer-producer Peter Tilden. Plus, we have special guests like Danny DeVito. I was marveling. It was such a life-saving moment. You like Houdini. Steve Martin and Martin Short. We were working and Marty had this Christmas opportunity to fly home and see his grandkids and his children. And he gets off the plane and has COVID. It was a Home Alone sequel except for a seven-year-old with COVID. Charlie Day. David, thanks for keeping me alive. And thanks for keeping Danny alive so we could keep the show on the air for as long as possible. And many more. New episodes of Bedside Matters drop every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the emotional journey this book must have taken you on. And and was it was there catharsis in, in telling some of these stories? I think there was catharsis in writing some of these stories. But as my agent and my girlfriend and my editor and anybody who was talking to me when it came time to turn this book in will tell you i started looking for problems so not to give it up so i think there was catharsis in writing it and then i think i got very scared when it became clear to me that other people might actually read, read it. it yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah very different things and uh, it's like your therapy session is done. Now let's publish the notes for the world. Notes to anyone out there that's listening that is maybe thinking about this process again. Uh, for me, uh, I needed money, and and so I did sell this as an idea, like I said. And then so then at that point, just for the record, you got to turn it in if you can afford to. Maybe think about making the manuscript first, then pursuing that because I, all of a sudden I had this thing and I had to. I had to relinquish it, even though, like I said, I was like, wait, what if we took another year to do? And everyone was like, stop, just, just let it go. So there was catharsis in writing it. And then it became very scary uh, to share it. And, and, and then of course, now that I'm on the other side of that, I can say, but now I'm, it's, it's, it's with great appreciation and gratitude that I can share that now, of course, I'm so glad that it's out there in the world um, for many different reasons, uh, I've gotten some really kind notes, but the, the main thing is part of what this book was about was how my family and I didn't really talk about anything. And I knew there was a chance and, and I wanted to allow them to have whatever reactions they wanted to have to the book, but I knew there was a chance that my parents might read this and we had been estranged in the past and maybe that was going to happen again. And, uh, instead kind of the exact opposite happened. I've, I've had a really wonderful and fulfilling relationship with both of my parents since the book has come out. We've had some conversations that we, uh, well, to be fair, they didn't even know, like I, I wouldn't have had the bravery to bring up, you know, 
And, and so this, this brought us together to have these conversations. And, and, and I am so incredibly grateful for that. Now, don't get me wrong. That's not to say my mom didn't have notes. Great jokes at my expense um, over the past 18 months. Um, but, but again, like I said at the beginning, both my parents really love books and they really love literature. Uh, and so they also understand what goes into making art. And I, I'm so grateful for that. So my mom basically, you know, many back and forth that I want to keep private for us, but one, one that she's told me I'm allowed to share. She's kind of like, what about all the canoeing trips? Where's, there's not, where's all the camp? We did a lot of camping when you were a kid. Where's all the camping, you know? And I get it for her as a mother. She's like, where's chapter three? Things weren't so bad. You know, where, where's. <laughs> you left where, out the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so what I said to her, I said, look, mom, the truth is a block of wood. And that's, it is, it's what happened. It's what's there. We maybe see that block of wood differently, but we definitely are going to carve different statues out of that block of wood. Whatever piece of art you make from that block of wood is going to look a lot different than mine. And because she's incredibly well-read and an incredibly caring mother, she got that almost immediately. And that was kind of, that was a very early conversation we had that then led to, to many other wonderful ones. So, so I, I got catharsis eventually, but there was, don't get me wrong, a very, a very scary middle point in there when you kind of realize that there's a reason you haven't been telling many people these stories. And instead yeah. of telling your fifth closest friend, you're going to just publish it for strangers to have that. <laughs> Sell the Barnes and Noble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To have that same interaction with where somebody can completely misinterpret maybe what you meant. Yeah. Um, but, but it, but it was, a. it's, it, you know, it's funny cause I haven't talked about this very much cause the book came out in July of 2022 and I've, I've been going, going, going. And now with the paperback, I'm, I'm able to maybe even settle a little bit and, and really think about it. But it's it's an experience that I feel really grateful for. I'm so glad. That's great to hear. I like that. Um, were there were there parts that you really very seriously considered leaving out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, there just there are parts that were left out, too. Um, what not, not to reverse the question, but what's funny is then there will be parts that you swear to God you didn't put in there. (laughs) Where did this come from? (laughs) Somebody's texting you about, whoa, and you're like, yeah, but that was in an older draft. And then you go back and you're like, oh, huh, I guess I did put that back in. You know, like there are are those moments too. Um, But yeah, this is going to be something I'm I'm working on another book right now. because and nonfiction is all I know. God bless fiction writers. God bless world builders. God bless people that can pull things from their own imagination. If you read this book and the name is interesting, if you read Dirtbag Massachusetts and the name of a character is interesting, that's because that's their real name. John Ritzman, as my boarding school roommate, is a great example. Ritzman, I couldn't have made that up, right? Right. That's that's just real. If it's Joe, Joe. Some, some like that, then that's a name I had to make up because somebody asked me not to put their name in it. That's all a long way of saying I'm so astonished by people that can make things up. But for me, I'm nonfiction all the way. It just, it's just, ha- it's the only way I know how to make art. So, of course, there are going to be some family aspects in this next book as well. But what's different between Dirtbag and the next book is with Dirtbag, I knew I couldn't show it to them until it was on the way to the printing press. I just knew to, to, to get to your question, was there stuff that I left out? Absolutely. Stuff I came close to thinking about? Absolutely. Um, but then decide to leave in for sure. But I knew that those decisions had to be mine because mm-hmm. otherwise I'd, I'd put up 700 more hurdles of why not to publish. And so it was on its way to the printing press before I shared it. I knew I wanted them to read it before it was in bookshelves, but I, I just sent that to them. What's going to be different with this next book is I, I, because we're having these conversations, I'm much more open to the idea of, Hey guys, here's something I'm thinking about sharing. Not only are you okay with it, but Hey, do you have any other memories around this that I'm, I'm maybe not, not remembering or, or is there something here you can add to it? Cause that's another thing that happened with the book is sometimes my mom would be like, 
I wish you'd ask me. I got I got a story ten times funnier than this. You didn't like you didn't even know this <laughs> or the way you remember something. You yeah. know, everyone else involved would be like, "That's not how that happened." But- no, exactly. And so I'm I'm looking forward to to kind of that aspect of it. But but yeah, to answer your question, a lot of things. Almost, I mean, the book itself almost, you know, there are definitely days where I was like, hang on, maybe I can just try and rewrite this back in that pop culture package. Um, but but I, I also, there are certain things I maybe wasn't ready to face yet or wasn't aware I was feeling yet. Kind of like I said, 25, I would have written this book differently than I did 35. Let's see what I'm feeling at 45. You know, like it's, I'm sure yeah. there's, it's, it, all we do as humans is, is continue to grow and change. So I'm sure there's going to be different things. It's awesome. I it. Well, I mean, you, you really sort of opened a vein and, and bled on the page. And um, it's got to be really gratifying to have so many heavy hitters like Min Jin Lee and Marlon James and Casey Lyman and Michael Ian Black, like we said earlier, weigh in on your work. And um, so what did that feel like for you to have such a such an outpouring for such a personal work? You guys are asking really good questions because you're getting stories a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. Top top line answer. Top top line. Incredible. Of course, just like overwhelming. These are people that I read deeply, and here they are engaging with my work, um, and and saying nice things about it. Just like phenomenal. Blew me away. Um, what you should also know is that Min Jin's blurb, Mar- Marlon gave his blurb first so that it could be on the galley arcs, early readers copies for mm-hmm. folks. So we had Marlins. We had one. Min Jin's was the next blurb to come in. And it was about two hours. This is not Min Jin's fault. I want to be very clear on that. Okay. She didn't know how, how tight I was, but it came in two hours before basically we were supposed to go like, like hit, that's it. And the designer was like, okay, we're going to try it. Maybe we'll make these blurbs very big or something like they were trying to play with what it was going to look like. And when I tell you that I, I took the longest walk, I just walked away. Like I was just like, this is, it's a nail biting. I can't. And so of course it felt so amazing to get even those two blurbs in. Uh, And then when I came back literally in the span of two hours, everybody else's had just like clicked into play. Like everyone submitted it. You give a writer a deadline and they're going to go right up to it. It was, it, it was, <laughs> a a but at the la- like again, hindsight 2020 could have given myself a day breather there. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but like they all came in. So, so it almost gave me like, like my heart was bursting with gratitude while also I was having a heart attack. Um, <laughs> but, but then to have the book go out into the world, right. Cause these, you know, you ask somebody for a blurb, they're probably going to be kind They're They're right. And, but then to see the ways in which different people connected with the work and, 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 you know, one of my favorite reviews, um, oh, I, be, I believe it's just called American magazine, but it's, it's literally like a Jesuit Catholic magazine, you know, like, like people that covered this book that I never expected it to even get in their hands and, um, and, and for them to, to feel positively about it has just been incredible. I will say this. Can I share one, one other? Yes, fun? of course. I also like, I am a child of the internet. I talk about in one of the essays in the book, I grew up one of the, basically that generation where I'm on the fence. I can remember pre-internet, but then I remember the internet kind of rising when I was a teenager. So I do read a lot of stuff online. I'm not going to, you know, certain people I think are very good at being like, ah, and I will never look at any reviews and I show that. And I'm like, that's beautiful for you. And you live a Zen life, but no, I I eat it all. I look at it all. Um, And so I did, I want to share after sharing that praise, I want to share. I also got a one star review. Oh, we love those. That is maybe one of my favorites of all time. So if you're listening, you haven't read the book, that's okay. I'll just quickly explain. In one of the essays, I talk about riding a motorcycle um, while I'm blackout drunk. And the next morning I wake up and I realize what I've done. And I immediately walk to the bar where I'm working and spending most of my time at that point. And I give the keys of the motorcycle to a friend. I basically give away the motorcycle immediately. I realize that I was not mature enough to have it yet. Yeah. 
and somebody left a one-star review and they said, all you need to know about this guy is that after driving a motorcycle blackout, instead of even thinking about quitting drinking, he gave away his motorcycle. That is a good point. Yeah. yeah. But again, that's the, the beauty of making something like this is like even, even somebody to engage with it and, and, and they want to roast me for it. Like just the fact that they're engaging with it is so incredible. That was an incredible piece, though. Um, I'll just say that it may, I think it makes the reader kind of reflect on their own life and some of the things that they've decided to do and, and things that they've gone through and kind of reflect on their own experience. So that was that was very powerful, that one. Thank you. So, um, God, I can't believe we're running out of time, but I do want to okay, ask. I'm long-winded, so if you guys need some more time, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Um, so, one of the things that I really respect about you is your passion for books. When did you first realize how much a part of your life books and reading were? So, I listen, this is one of the things where you just got to give full credit to my folks. This is all my parents. I mean – don't even get me wrong. I'm in middle age now and I'm starting to be like, wait, did I just basically dedicate my life to trying to figure this out just to impress my parents in this very weird roundabout way? Mm. They loved books and they loved literature and they loved stories and they raised me with that. And then also don't forget on top of that, their other faith was Catholicism. So I had a love of literature, a love of education, a love of books. And then I also had this this love of God, but what is what is Catholicism? It's a, they, like it is based on the Bible. Like these are stories. My parents, like I, I grew up with this book that was called the Book of Saints, and you could just read all these incredibly intense, like like Bible stuff gets really, especially that Old Testament. You know, like there's a lot of wild stuff going on. But even you get into the New Testament days, and you get into the saints, like like there are people that are martyred and being eaten by lions. Like there's a lot of incredible stuff there to spark your imagination as a kid. Um, <laughs> So I grew up just loving the written word and, and my parents instilled that in me. And, you know, like I said, we didn't have much, but some of my earliest memories are my parents packing up their library. Like we would have discarded tables and like hand me down toasters and all that stuff would just be left on the curb, which is probably where we found it. So some other family can grab it, but the libraries always got packed up in milk crates, always got put in the, like, it was like that, that it was clear to me, even as a child, like, right. You, nobody tells you these things, but you just learn by watching. That was the prize for them. Yeah. That books was, were valued. Yeah. Yeah. That was their most sacred possession was the, the books that would go in the back of my dad's truck when we moved. Um, and so it's always been an obsession and that, and, and like I said, yet I, I didn't have any idea. It wasn't until I was 23 and I was in that, that writing center for kids, eight to six months. I was literally like taking a note that was like, yeah, we got to teach this to eight year olds being like, Oh, I'm learning this right now because I had no real idea about contemporary fiction, about a contemporary writing scene. I was raised kind of reading all these old classics, basically. And so it's it's this beautiful part of my life where my parents instilled this love of it in me. Then they end up being right. Even as my parents and I become distanced, it's education that helps me get out of my living situation. And then I end up going on a grand adventure of my own. And it's there when I'm 23, where all of a sudden I'm like, wait, people are still doing this. There's, there's, there's a community out here to go find. And that's when I, you know, basically I came up through working for the internet, but eventually I, I, I uh, am working on this online culture magazine called the rumpus and Roxanne gay is publishing there before bad feminist Cheryl Strayed has an incredible anonymous. She's not, nobody knows it's her at the time, but wild hasn't even come out yet, but she's writing this dear sugar column that everybody absolutely loves. Um, and then like truly, I know, she, she's like, I've got this book coming out. It's like, oh yeah, things are about to change. Um, same with Roxanne, right? Saeed Jones, who's this incredible poet, uh, Morgan Parker, another incredible poet, but like this writing community that I find online, Saeed becomes one of my nearest and dearest best friends. Um, and then he goes on to write an incredible memoir himself called how we fight for our lives. Um, but it's through, it's through that love of literature that gift that my parents gave me, even at, when we were estranged or, or having difficult times through that level of literature, I find my community. I find what I'm doing with my life. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm not always reading the books that are assigned to me in school, but through education, I'm in the back of the class reading the wrong book underneath the desk, but it still keeps me engaged. 
Um, and, and so it's in my life, it's been booksellers, librarians, the people that have looked out for me have always been in the book world. So now that, you know, I, I, I go on the today show once a season, maybe like six times a year at most, but I get to talk about books on this national platform. I don't get paid to do that. I'm, I just feel grateful that they give me the opportunity to do it. And it feels like a way to give something back to this world that has given so much to me, but it starts with my parents. That's great. That's great. So the book is, is a bit of a cautionary tale. So let's do this. Um, what's a, what's a bit of advice you would as, as, Isaac Fitzgerald today would give to your younger self or to other young people. Yeah. It's, this is, listen, it's, it's one, it's one I think I've, I've thought of a lot. And so I have, I have the answer, but I just, to, to start as, like I said, I'm long winded, but a little story, like something else I've realized we were talking about kind of looking at your past after you've grown, you become an adult. Right. So I was talking about how like, an adult in that situation has a whole world of experience and sometimes anger happening to them. Whereas when you're a kid, your, your house is your whole world, maybe school and the house, maybe two worlds max. Um, the other thing that happens when you're a kid, if you have a bad few years and you're eight, that's a quarter or maybe a half of your life, the entire time you've existed. And when you're an adult and you have a bad couple of years, that's what it is. It's a bad couple of years. And so I think that's, that's how this, Sometimes imbalance can happen where for a child, everything feels so huge and so detrimental and it can have this outsized effect on the child's psyche and upon their life. And an adult can be like, wait, yeah, I listen, that sucks. I know. But it was like, oh, it was only a couple of years. And it's like, ah, but, well, but this will see. seem ridiculous in a year or two, right? Like, right. right. But if you yeah. see the difference, if you remember, if you can get into that child's psyche of like, no, wait, that's like half of their whole existence. And that's a long time for things to, to suck. Um, so that I, I, I want to make sure like that's not shied away from in this in this book at all. But the flip side of that, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, gets to what you just asked, which is like a recommendation for myself in the past or, or kind of anyone. And, and for me, the story of the last 18 months since this book has come out has been give people a chance to surprise you. Give people a chance uh, excellent. to surprise I think part of the reason I didn't even have some of these conversations with people I cared about or with my parents was I was always in a way almost rushing past so that I, I didn't feel the emotion. So I didn't sit. So I didn't process. It was just move, 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 move. You know, again, not the best example, but always swimming, always swimming from like the Finding Nemo movies. You know, yeah, just, yeah. just keep swimming. Just keep, keep swimming. <laughs> exactly. Keep moving forward. You're not going to. So, so I couldn't even express to my parents. It's something, it's something my mom said. When she read the manuscript, she said, I had no idea you were carrying this. And that is because I didn't give her a chance to surprise. I had a story in my head of how she would react. I had a story in my head of how everyone would react. And so don't talk to people about it. Just keep going. If you stop and you allow people to surprise you, give them the chance. They might not. Sometimes people are disappointing. That's absolutely some people uh, oftentimes yeah, yeah right yeah, oftentimes. more often than we'd like but if you can have an open heart and give people the chance to surprise you you might be floored by the response and and i've had some conversations with some writer friends who i love who write other types of incredible work but they're like ah, i'm thinking about a memoir but i'm like how am i and again don't get me wrong that brother sister cousin whoever might react very poorly but give them a chance to surprise you because that's what's happened. I've, I've been very lucky that that's what's happening with this book time and time again. It's interesting. Cause I mean, while you process all of this differently now, looking back, uh, I don't know, this is, this is like a therapy session, but like you, <laughs> there's a chance that had you, had you opened yourself up to your mom or your dad or whoever then about this thing while it was happening, you wouldn't have gotten what you needed. And and their perspective now, decades later, there's the grace lies somewhere there in the time that has passed. No, that one, you're, one, you're absolutely right. 
too. It's very funny. They said, this is getting like a therapy session. Cause but part, part of the book is I come to therapy part, you know, everyone comes to therapy at the right time. I shouldn't put a judgment on it, but to be a little new England, I came to it a little later than I should have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry to my therapist who doesn't like when I judge things, but uh, I came to it a little later than I should have. Uh, but one of the things me and my therapist have talked about, she said, do you realize if you learned to have these conversations, this book might not exist. Ah, uh, there's that. And, true. And of course for me, I'm like, well that, no, because now I'm so happy that it, right. But she's like, but don't forget the parts of it. Like there's a world where, you know, you never know. And it is, and it's funny because she's non judged So she's not putting a judgment on it, but I immediately am like, Oh, would that be a good thing or bad? You know? And it's, it's like, just, <laughs> just sit and let it be. But there, like you said, there's, there's a world where maybe the right conversations happen at the right time. Um, or yeah. to, put it, to put it better, there's maybe no wrong time to have. So uh, I like that. That's so totally true. Totally true. Okay. Let's pretend we're on the Today Show. Give us the three titles that we should be paying attention to right now. Oh, no. Well, I can do this because I'm going to be on the Today Show tomorrow. <laughs> Oh, really? Oh. <laughs> um, Let, Us Descend. Let Us Descend by Jesmyn Ward. Um, yeah. It's coming out in like a week or two. Oh, yep. I mean, listen, it's so clean. Like, Jesmyn Ward does not need, like, Jesmyn Ward's doing fine. But the book's so good, I couldn't not recommend. Like, that's how good. Like, Salvage, I, I've been a Jesmyn Ward fan for so long at this point. Um, but she has produced yet another incredible wonderful book would let us descend um wellness uh by nathan hill is yes. for not 600 pages but i, I yeah it's a doorstop I don't know it. it goes by and i love it because i've like listened to some things and, and read some things that he's been interviewed on and he's just like he's like i just research what interests me uh it's funny chuck Palahniuk he said, would say something very similar but what interests chuck Palahniuk is way grosser um, but <laughs> in a good way, I say that with love, Chuck. Yeah, uh, but 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 Nathan Nathan Hill, like the stuff that he gets into is 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 very much about uh, the things that are that are failing us right now as a society, or things that we're maybe far too obsessed with. Um, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful novel. Um, and I have I have others, but I actually have this one right here, so I'm just gonna plug it. Uh, which is I'm reading it for. So my next book is about John Chapman, AKA Johnny Appleseed. Oh. And the title comes from Botany of Desire by Michael Pollan, uh, American Dionysus. Cause yep. you know, you're educated to think like, Oh, he was, it was apples for the pioneers or, and for their horses. And, and don't get me wrong. Some of this, there's, he's a very complicated person. There's a lot of history there. He's a missionary, but a lot of those apples were used for boots. And that's why Michael Pollan called him. American Dionysus. So I'm reading this book. It's called Drunk by Edward Slingerland. And it's how we sit, danced, and stumbled our way to civilization. And he's actually a historian who studied, who spent a lot of his time studying religion. Um, but basically, there's all these different theories on like, when did we become an agricultural society? What, when did we figure out that we could grow food instead of being hunter-gatherers? And there's all these different theories, but this new theory that's kind of coming out is like, it wasn't actually about food. It wasn't even so much about power. It was, we realized how to make beer and, <laughs> or, or, or whatever the equivalent of beer, you know, in South, yeah, South right, America. Right, right. But like, and then, and then we started putting our ass together to just try and make sure we had enough crops for that. But anyways, it's a fascinating book and it gets into all sorts of different kind of histories and philosophies. I have written that down. All right. Those are three big ones. I like that's, it. That's excellent. All right. Well, um, tell our listeners how they can connect with you online, website, socials, in-person events, what's happening. Well, so right now, like I said, I'm working on that book about Johnny Appleseed. So if you're in Massachusetts, most parts of Pennsylvania, Ohio, or kind of the easternmost part of Indiana, Fort Wayne, and you see me on person, I'm out there rambling around, definitely say hello. Um, but if you're looking for me online, it's IsaacFitzgerald.net. Uh, I also have a Substack where I interview other writers. It's called Walk It Off. We go for long walks together, and I interview them. Some of the writers that we mentioned on this very uh, podcast are on there. Um, and then probably the best way to connect uh, right now is I'm on uh, Twitter, at Isaac Fitzgerald, or I also am spending a lot of time on Blue Sky, 
given what's happening out there. Uh, so I'm also Isaac Fitzgerald on Blue Sky. Or actually, you know what? The best one? Instagram. Just find me on Instagram. It's <laughs> at Isaac.Fitzgerald, and we'll have some fun. Yeah, you're pretty well, fascinating on Instagram. I followed you. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's a lot of pictures of flowers. <laughs> so, I, it's cool. There I are love worse it. things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Okay, well, thank you so much, to Isaac, for joining us. This has been thank you way more than I had hoped for. So I, I yes. just... You're endlessly fascinating. Well, you, you guys are wonderful. Thank you for such wonderful questions. Well, it's easy. You give us such great content to, to work yes. from. It's, it's just incredible. And I know that uh, we all look forward to whatever's coming next. So good luck with it. Thank you. And good luck on the paperback release. Thank you. Yeah, yes, I'll, if luck. you go to my website and or Instagram, the tour's up. So I am also, I'm going to be in like Michigan and I'll be around soon. Awesome. And thank you to our valued listeners. We're so grateful each week that you tune in, comment, and share our episodes. Be sure to go to the friendsandfictionbookshop.org page to snag a copy of Dirtbag Massachusetts. You know you want to. <laughs> Help our indie bookstores and save a little money. We hope you'll join us each and every Friday for a new episode. And as always, be sure to tell a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends in Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. <laughs>